0: Hello everyone, welcome to Compass Teachers Show. I'm your host, Stephen. My job is to interview teachers around the world and tease out their teaching tactics, education research, or tools they use. Hopefully, this show can offer some ideas for you to experiment in your classroom. (coughs) In this episode, we are going to dive into project-based learning or PBL. Project-based learning is a pedagogy in which students learn by actively engaging in real-world and personally meaningful projects. And today, our guest is Dr. Jennifer Perret, who is a well-known expert of it. Jenny holds a PhD in education philosophy with an emphasis in project-based learning. She is an accomplished author and sought-after speaker on the topic of PBL. Previously, Jenny was a classroom teacher at High Tech High, an organization that operates 16 schools in San Diego County. She's also a former school development coach for New Tech Network and national faculty at Bulk Institute for Education. Jenny is the founder of Crafty Curriculum and is doing tons of coaching and consulting to administrators and teachers across the U.S. and abroad. So please enjoy our conversation today. Hello, Jenny. Thanks for coming to our show.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: So I learned that, Jenny, your first practical experience with PPL is in high tech high. Um, What does your first experience with PPL look like and any frustration or struggles from it?
1: Um, I kind of think of two different things, I guess, when we talk about my very first experience. So my, my very, very first experience, like my first day on the job was co-planning with my partner teacher. And, um, he, I, he was so incredibly patient with me (laughs) when I look back on it. Um, and it was very foreign to me working with someone on my lesson planning. I just, you know, prior to the experience being at High Tech High, I'd always just kind of worked in isolation. So I think that was my very first experience with project-based learning was actually a collaborative one. And I think that really speaks to kind of what my work even looks like today. Um and then the second kind of first experience was as a teacher. So uh, my very first project that I ever ran um, as a classroom teacher at High Tech High, which was a complete disaster, <laughs> it was awful. Like, like we're talking, like, sometimes you design projects and they're you can refine them and make them better. And sometimes you just should jump ship and never run them again. And it was definitely the latter. Um, it just, it was a mess. And it's, you know, I, I think everybody's first experience is a little bit messy, but that one... Definitely was flawed in that it it lacked some really important foundational pieces that I now embed into my practice in supporting teachers to be sure that they don't ever have that kind of a disaster again.
0: So, can you give us one of or two, like example, why it is a disaster for you for the at the first time?
1: Yeah. So it was. Um, so th- there's a pretty extensive onboarding experience at High Tech High, they call it the Odyssey. And it's like a month long experience of just understanding what PBL is and how to how to plan it and facilitate it. But it, it's very much, um, how can I put this, it, an autonomous process at High Tech High. So like there isn't one standard way to design a project. Everybody has a different way to do it. And I think for me, I was trying to be so drastically different from how I had taught previously in a private traditional school that I left out some important best practices. So for example, I didn't know what benchmarking a project was. I didn't know how to build in benchmarks, which means that I also wasn't formatively assessing. So I did know that it was important to have an authentic audience. So I had um, a panel of experts come in to view the students' presentations at the very end of the project. And while the students were doing their presentation, I was sitting in the back of the classroom behind the panel. And I just, I was so embarrassed because I realized it was the first time I was assessing my students' content mastery, and they hadn't mastered the content, yet they were presenting in front of this expert panel. Um, And so that was really my first kind of run in with, wow, I need to do a better job of assessing them along the way and benchmarking out the project so that I can scaffold the learning and be sure that they're getting where they need to be before the end of the project.
0: That leads to my question, because you mentioned we have different um, definition of PPL. So what are the key components in PPL for you and how do you define PPL?
1: Yeah, and this is different for everybody. Everyone has their own working definition, and you know, if we look at historically the roots of project-based learning, it's it's evolved and changed over time too. So, um, for me, my definition comes from my own experience in the field, working alongside teachers and the realities that they're in right now. So, my definition right now isn't even the same as what my definition would have been fifteen years ago when I was in the classroom. So, you know, what I found working with teachers is that there is this need to teach standards, right? Like we, we can't avoid those standards. There's something that's that's just part of what we have to cover. So for me, the very first non-negotiable of PBL is that it has to be rooted in standards. So it has to be content that you're, you know, the expectation is that you're teaching it, students are learning it, rooted in standards, Um Secondly, the another non-negotiable for me would be that there's best practices of formative assessment embedded throughout the project. So, um, you know, what we know is productive for students in terms of giving them feedback, them reflecting and growing and learning, all of those best practices need to show up in the benchmarks and the way we're designing the project. Um, third, is that there needs to be some real world connection. So, you know, this element of authenticity is critical, especially right now for kids. But we need to really think about how to contextualize the standards into a real world application so that children understand why they're learning what they're learning and what it has to do with the world around them. Um, and then, you know, the, the fourth piece to that is that there needs to be some 21st century skills embedded in the project and that those 21st century skills are explicitly being scaffolded and assessed just like the content and alongside the content. So when I say 21st century skills, I mean things like collaboration, oral communication, agency, those things are equally as important as the content. um, and, And in many ways, that's how students access the content. So we need to be sure that we're setting the projects up in a way that are going to develop those those skills um, just as much as we would develop the the content that students need to learn through the standards.
0: Got it. So would you mind giving us a real PBL example that we can know how it might look like in classroom?
1: Yeah, I'm going to give you two because I think, you know, classrooms right now look very different <laughs> than, right. than they do. Why
0: inspirational because of the COVID-19? Yeah, right.
1: yeah. So I think, um, one of my favorite projects, and actually I can share the link with you if you want to include it in the show notes.
0: Yeah, that would be great. Is
1: yeah. um, one that I shared on a, on a podcast I did for Cult of Pedagogy. And it's, um, it's this project that's called um, Silent Voices. And it's about all of the voices that we don't read in history books, in particular as it related to the American Revolution. And it was a fifth grade project. And I just, I loved it for a lot of reasons, but namely just that you know, when I was working on the project and we were dreaming it up for kids, it was like, wow, I can't believe fifth graders are going to do this. Like, this is what, you know, we things we kind of started to learn about in college, but we should have learned earlier. Um, and the way that we set it up made it so accessible and relatable for kids. And I think it just was a testament to what kids can really do when you set them up and and set them up for it and, and believe that they that they can. So um that's probably my favorite example. And that, that example is also featured in my, um, my elementary book, keep it real with PBL. Um, another example that I can share with you is, um, you know, one for, for more of a virtual setting. So I've been talking a lot recently about PBL light, which is a modified version of my PBL framework. So rather than being 10 steps to planning and facilitating, it's only five. Um, and so an example of, of um, a virtual project that I recently designed was um, having students write a who would win story. And so I'm not sure if you're familiar, your elementary audience might be familiar with this book series, but it's a series of um, informational kind of style texts about two animals that would never normally battle in nature, but the book puts them together and it gives you all the statistics about each of them. And then it kind of says, if they were to go to battle, who would win? And so I had students write, um, kind of use this as a model to write their own book about, it could be any two things they wanted to compare. So two famous athletes, you know, two um, famous scientists, or two well-known artists. So if they were to kind of battle each other in whatever setting that might look like, who, who would win? And so there was a lot of researching involved, interviewing involved, um, and then they ended up going through the entire writing production kind of timeline and actually publishing a book and sharing it in a virtual author event at the end with a with a wide audience.
0: Got it. That's really interesting. So um, actually, Jenny, you mentioned about benchmark and that's the piece I'm really interested too because when I was reading your work, there's a piece of... Um, things that you remind people that group grades are a no-no curious why group grades are discouraged and if there's any example with project benchmarks that you can provide for listener to understand more how to do benchmarks
1: yeah okay so there's i think there's two questions there so the first one being about um collaboration yeah and group grades Mm -hmm. so It's a big no-no for me because when students are working together, it is very difficult to know what individual students understand, know, um, because issues of status and equity show up when we work in groups. If we are not very careful to include strict protocols um, that do things like take down those barriers of power and privilege that show up in group work. So, you know, what I mean by that is if you have a student, say, who's a second, second language learner, their comfort with speaking in a group um, is is going to likely be lower than, than another student. And so we might not hear from that first student. And so how would we know what they know? And so if a group turns in a final product altogether, we can't just assume that everyone knows and contributed the same thing to that final product. So I encourage teachers to assess students' collaboration skills. How are they working together in a group rather than what do they know as a group? Because that's very difficult to to be able to say without individually assessing each child. Um, so, you know, so that, that's kind of the first piece of that question. Um, the second piece about benchmarking is is and people not everybody like that likes that word benchmarking. So if you don't like that word, I would say you could all it's synonymous with milestones or phases of a project. Um, really, what it is is just taking your your end in mind, your final product, and working backwards and breaking it down into smaller chunks, phases, milestones, benchmarks, whatever you want to call it, um, to make the project more digestible for everybody. So it's just setting it's 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 If you're an industry, it's just like project management, right? How do we take the whole and break it down into parts so that we can get to the whole? Um, And and tied to each benchmark or within each benchmark is where you find your daily lesson plans and your scaffolding. And then tied to each of those benchmarks is a deliverable that is formatively assessed. And this is really giving students an opportunity to um, engage in assessment for learning rather than assessment of learning. Because we're giving them feedback and allowing them to grow and develop throughout this process rather than just waiting till the end and grading when it's all over. There's no opportunity then for them to give it another try or to apply that feedback to the next phase of their learning.
0: Great. So, how often do you think a teacher should do the benchmark throughout the project?
1: Um, so, typically, uh, there are anywhere from three to five benchmarks in a project. It just depends on how many standards you're covering. Um, you know, how robust a project is, is obviously going to dictate how much you need to break it down. So if it's a smaller project, you know, that's say running three or four weeks, you're probably only going to have like three benchmarks. If it's a much bigger project, um, you know, maybe closer to six weeks then you would have something more like five or six, um, maximum.
0: What are the misconceptions of PBL that you always need to demystify for teachers?
1: Oh, yeah, there's a lot. Um, I can also include a piece that I wrote on this that's called Myth-Busting Project-Based Learning, and it's the five top misconceptions. Um, so we've already hit on a few of them. One of them is that everything should be collaborative, right? So I, I try to kind of bust that myth right out the gate and just say that you know, if it makes sense for students to be working in a group and it's a task that truly necessitates collaboration, great. If it's not, then save it for something else. Not everything has to be in a group. Um, Another misconception that we've already kind of hit on is that there isn't uh, assessment or standards in projects. That's very much at the forefront of of the design. Um, Another question I get a lot is about, you know, kind of what we call voice and choice. So this idea that everything is student driven, and there's a really big misunderstanding to that, and that teachers think, okay, well, if it's student driven, then I don't really have a place in this. So I just kind of sit back, and they they take it wherever they want, right? And and the answer is no. Actually, you know, for me, voice and choice is yes. We give students choice. Um, you know, maybe it's they have three different options in final products, or they have a voice in. Um, you know, the content that they want to research as related to the driving question of the project. But it by no means means that the teacher isn't still putting those guardrails on student learning and, and still guiding them in directions to be sure that they are learning what they need to be learning. Um, so I think those are probably the, the top ones that I, I find myself addressing most often.
0: i curious about sometimes I heard that teachers found hard to build PBL because of the collaboration with different subject teachers do you have any advice for cross-subjects collaboration because I can imagine teachers might have different opinions on what are the most important things to learn
1: yeah it is hard and I think probably the I'm, I'm going through yoga teacher training right now so I've been learning a lot about the, wow, the ego too. <laughs> oh really <laughs> yeah Yeah. (laughs) So I think the ego, like (laughs) doing an ego check is is first and foremost, probably um, what teachers need to do when they're planning together. But um, then after that, I would say what I normally recommend for teachers is to use what I call the driving standards when you're starting out with your project design and driving standards are social studies and science. And I recommend those two because uh, it doesn't mean that the others aren't important. So I'll just say that. But I recommend those two because the way that they're written tends to provide a really nice context or theme that the other content areas can really easily support. Um, so that that's kind of my my big first piece of advice. If you're if you're you know collaborating with another teacher. Um, make sure that one of those content areas is part of the conversation and let them throw out their, their main ideas of their standards and then the other teachers can start thinking about how they can fit inside of that.
0: Great. So what is the feedback you got from teachers that do PBL given your coaching and see the transformation of their students' learning?
1: Um, it depends. Every, every teacher is different and every context is different. You know, sometimes it takes some, sometimes like, you know, the early adopters, they'll do it once. And then it's like, they want to turn everything in their classroom into PBL because it's so wonderful. And they have this one, you know, this great positive experience with their kids. Other teachers, it, it takes a while, it takes a while, you know, they, um, they aren't what we would call their early adopters. They're they're a little more skeptical of it. You know. What I've found with those teachers is that like 99% of the time, they didn't do the project plan with fidelity. So we'll, we'll put the project plan in place and we'll make the calendar and we'll make all the assessment pieces. And what will happen is they'll say not use the rubric or they didn't formatively assess. And so they're, they're frustrated with the outcome. I'm yet to meet somebody who actually did the whole plan that we put together and was unhappy with it. Um, but I feel like teachers kind of fall into one of those two camps. And if they're a little apprehensive about it, it takes them doing it a couple times to kind of get there. But usually once once they've run through a few projects, it, it's really rare that a teacher you know, would tell you that it wasn't worth their time.
0: So if a teacher wants to try out PBL what how they can take their first step or use your crafty curriculum service
1: I I've kind of I have a very layered approach to project planning and and that's really intentional because I feel like you kind of just need to dip your toe in a little bit and then layer up from there so One of the categories on my blog under resources is called Getting Started with PBL. So it's much more about like making small shifts and just kind of the brainstorming process and coming up with ideas or analyzing models of existing projects and modifying those. Um, And then from there, I kind of layer up to, okay, now design your own project. Um, And this is also the way my book is written in this kind of progression. Um, You know, now write your own project. And then the next layer would be, okay, Reflect and refine that project and apply what you learned from that project to designing a second project. And then once you're feeling ready, now start diving into more of the nuances of PBL. So now you've got this project that you've run, you can kind of beef it up with, you know, doing an exhibition in the community in front of an authentic audience, really engaging in field work and getting students out into the field, collecting data, bringing experts in, um launching your project in a way that is really engaging and exciting for students, those to me are all much more, like I mentioned before, nuances. There are they're more advanced um, kind of approaches to designing projects. And that's also a category on my blog, which is advanced tips for PBL. And my e-courses are set up in this way. And the book chapters are in this progression because I really feel like I ran those trainings for companies where it was a 40-hour training and we taught them everything they needed to know in 40 hours and they I would see tears coming down teachers faces halfway through the week it just it was too much for them all at once. So when I set out to start my own company and kind of come up with my own framework I kept it as the planning form is one page there's no staple and I kept all of my resources in this layered approach because I really feel that Teachers need to get in and roll their sleeves up and try it. And then their need to knows are much more driven by authentic need to knows things that, okay, they've done it. They've tried it. Gosh, that, you know, that group work didn't really go great. Like, how do I think about getting better at fostering collaboration in my classroom? Those to me then feel like much more of an organic time to talk about, okay, yeah, how do we do that now? So um, there's layers, I would say, to getting started. So just get in and kind of start connecting with people on social media. Um, the hashtag PBL chat is really great on Twitter to just see what other PBL teachers are doing um, and, and just kind of start wrapping your, your mind around what it is and what it could look like for you in your classroom.
0: What is the piece of advice you would give to people who wants to try out PBL?
1: So right now I know that it it can feel really overwhelming to teachers given that so many different places are doing teaching and learning differently this fall. Um, So I would say for right now, given our current context and the pandemic that we're in, I would say to to rethink maybe how you've understood PBL in the past. So I've been doing a lot of resource creation and blogging and writing on um, this idea of PBL light. So a much more condensed and modified version of PBL. So I think if a teacher, you know, is thinking about it, don't don't get hung up on what it's been in the past. You know, try to think about how it could be a framing for you um, to create just meaningful learning experiences for for students in whatever your setting is in the fall.
0: Wonderful. I believe our listeners can get go, a good sense of PBL and be inspired to apply into their teaching. And last few questions I want to touch on are, except for your the books that you wrote, is there any other books that you recommend the most?
1: Um, You know, I'm not really so much of a, well, I read for my own pleasure, but in terms of work, I, I like to use um, links and articles because I feel like they're much more real time and more practical and not so theoretical. So I'm, I have different channels on social media for different purposes. I do most of my learning through Twitter, so I there are some incredible minds. Um, you know, one of my favorites to follow is Cult of Pedagogy. Um, there's just there's so many wonderful resources that feel very practical right now. So that's actually where I do the the most of my learning. Um, I have a few of Joe Bowler's books, so I love her work. Um, leaders of their own learning and an ethic of excellence by Ron Berger would be I guess my other kind of favorites and then um, designing group work uh, by Cohen uh, would probably be my others that have been like the most formative in my work
0: great Um, Jenny you mentioned about you use Twitter to learn a lot or get lots of like new information so Is there any educators work you are following the most recently?
1: Yeah. So the one I mentioned, the cult of pedagogy, um, Jen Gonzalez, her stuff, everything that she puts out, she's so thoughtful about what she puts out that it's every one of them is guaranteed to be something that I find useful. And then I've actually been creating a growing Google document that's just a curation of resources on virtual learning since COVID school closures. So those are all, um, I can share that link with you as well. Every one of the links that are on there, I've gone through and read and kind of put my stamp of approval on. So I think that would probably be the best examples that I could share would just be sharing that Google document with your audience.
0: So what is the worst advice you were given when you were a baby teacher?
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about that question since you kind of shared that one in advance. And I, I can't. I can't come up with any. And I think that's because even if there was bad advice, it's all something you can learn from. You know, I think one of the most important things that any teacher, but a PBL teacher in particular needs to be able to do is just to be able to reflect. And so every day, every lesson, every student was, okay, how could I have done that better? And so I think you know, even if it wasn't great advice, I've forgotten about it. But you know, I learned from it. And and I still continue to learn um, every day in this work, which is what I think is so great about PBL. You never really arrive.
0: Great. Before we close up, do you have any things you want to share with our listeners? And if they want to learn more about your work, how they can find you online?
1: Yeah, I am. I'm very active on social media. So my handle is at crafted underscore Jenny P. Um, And every day I try to post uh, material that is useful to teachers, parents, and school leaders. So it's anything from a project idea to a planning forum to great articles to support teachers, uh, just really practical tips and tools on there. So um, I would say that that's probably the the best place to to keep learning and growing. And then um, the other is my blog. So that's at craftedcurriculum.com. You'll see under the resource tab that there are um, a lot of different resources. You can search projects by elementary or secondary level or whatever level you're at with your own PBL journey, whether you're getting started or more advanced. Um, I, I try to update that a few times a week with just new content. So I would say those are probably two great places to get started.
0: Great. I will make sure they are on in our show notes. So thank you so much, Jenny, for sharing with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: (coughs) Thank you for listening. We will put the things mentioned in the interview to the show notes. If you enjoy our show, welcome to share and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you.